so good to hear God's word prompting so many to pray this morning. Um, it's often said that someone who starts the conversation is usually who guides and directs it. And so that's, that's why we start with God's word, even in prayer. And we allow that to guide and direct even our, our prayers and our conversations with God. And so um, it's such an encouragement just to hear that happening here this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 42. Mark 14, verses 27 through 42. And the title of this sermon is Pride and Prayer. Mark 14, 27 through 42. I love today's text for so many different reasons. But one of them is that it gives me more confidence in the text of Scripture itself. Uh, Let's just be honest. If if you or I, if we were writing a a story with a key hero, uh, the band of followers that he picks up wouldn't consistently fail like this. Uh, And remember, Mark's information in the Gospel of Mark comes from Peter, who's the main failure in this text today. When you're Telling a story, you don't tend to highlight your own failures, unless it actually happened that way. And the Holy Spirit is inspiring you to tell the story exactly as it happened. Today's text is both embarrassing and extremely encouraging for imperfect disciples like you and like me. It's a text that Mark, by the Holy Spirit, includes to teach us several key truths about discipleship and the struggle of following Jesus in a broken world. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord, Mark 14, 27 through 42. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. 
And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Our two main points for today's text are pride in verses 27 through 31, and point two, prayer in verses 32 through 42. So point one, pride. Now look with me again at verses 27 through 31. Don't you uh, empathize with and relate to Peter here? Uh, I know I do. He's so often sincere and confident in his statements, and he's honestly trying to follow Jesus the best he knows how, but a lot of times he ends up falling flat on his face. He's an imperfect disciple, and Jesus knows that. Look at verse 27. It says, And Jesus said to them, meaning all the disciples, You will fall away, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So, just a couple of chapters ago, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of thunder, that they boldly said that they could drink the cup that Jesus would drink and be baptized with the same baptism. But Jesus knew that their talk was bigger than their walk. And here, in our text, he quotes Zechariah 13.7, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Isn't that interesting? Jesus knew that this would happen. And yet, he still chose them as his followers. Do you understand that this morning? Perfection isn't a prerequisite for who Jesus can use. Hear me loud and clear. God does call us to holiness. He desires us to pursue holiness and obedience to his commands. So I'm not advocating antinomianism here or lawlessness. But I am saying... That perfection isn't a prerequisite for being a disciple of Jesus. He straight up knew that these guys were going to fall away and to scatter in the most important moment of his life. And he chose them anyway. Why is that? Well, Paul says it pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 26 through 31, Paul says this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If any of us thinks that that God chose us because he was getting a good deal in us, we don't understand God. And we don't understand election. No. He chose us, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. And the disciples in our text are exhibit A. He knew that they would all fail him. Peter especially included. And this was an opportunity for the gospel to be displayed. But let's look at Peter's response specifically. Verses 29 through 31. Jesus says this, and this is Peter's response. Peter said to them, to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Do you see that arrogance here? First, he's essentially calling Jesus a liar. Twice. Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. Peter says, nope, not me. Jesus responds, truly, you will deny me three times. Nope, not me. Without realizing it, he's calling Jesus a liar. Second, there's a whole lot of I there. I will not. Emphatically, I will not. There's no concept of, of with God's help or by God's grace, I won't, or anything like that. It's simply, I will not. I'm going to grit my teeth, pull myself up by my bootstraps, and grind this out on my own. I'm not going to do it, Jesus. I won't. Isn't that how a lot of us deal with temptation and sin? God, I've got this, all on my own, emphatically, I will not. I grip my teeth, pull myself up by my bootstraps, no dependence on God, I will not. Friends, this isn't how God wants us to function. He wants to see us dependent on him. Not self-reliant. Our posture towards sin should be, God, I'm fully capable of that sin if given over to myself. Fully capable of it. The only reason I don't commit that sin is because of God's grace to me. God, I need your strength if I'm going to overcome this sin. God, I can't do this without you. God, Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Hear this loud and clear. God is worthy to be sought. He's worthy to be sought. 
When we think that we can do it on our own, we're essentially saying, God, I don't need you. I've got this. Look at what Proverbs 16, 18 says about this. It's a famous, famous text. Sometimes we forget it. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Further, again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And so I want to ask us this question this morning. Where are you fully dependent on and certain of your own strength? I'll ask it again. Where are you fully dependent on and certain of your own strength? Seriously, consider that question this morning. Take time to repent where necessary. Learn to depend on God and not on your own strength, even for holiness. Think about that. Do you know what the outcome of that kind of thinking is, of fully depending on God, even for your holiness. Number one, when you begin to think like that, you'll become more humble and less arrogant towards other people's sins. Second, you'll be grateful for God's grace and mercy in your life. Third, God will be glorified. If it's, if it's all you and you're overcoming sin, guess who gets all the credit there? You. But if you're reliant on God, acknowledging that it's his strength in your weakness, he gets all the credit and all the glory. God is worthy to be sought. And notice the hope bomb that Jesus puts right in the middle here. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you see that? You're going to scatter. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you. Even in the middle of highlighting their failure, He's giving them gospel hope of his resurrection. Yes, Jesus would die for their sins, even the sin of abandoning him. And his resurrection was crucial for their justification or being made right with God. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 and 20, through 25, Paul says, But the, the words it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham, were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, meaning Jesus, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If Jesus had died and remained dead, we'd still be in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says that explicitly. It says, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
God. His resurrection was confirmation that, that God's promises to them and to us were fulfilled and that they were forgiven. Further, he told them that, that he would, after he was raised up, he'd go ahead of them to Galilee. This is important. Galilee is where he would recommission them to take the gospel to all nations. Did the disciples completely understand that in this moment? Probably not. But it was truth, nonetheless, that they could look back on later and see Jesus' grace to them. Friends, this is still truth today. Every single one of us has sinned and abandoned Jesus. If you've repented of your sin and believed in him, you're forgiven. How do you know that you're forgiven? Because he rose from the grave. That's your assurance of pardon. And you and me like the disciples, are commissioned to take the gospel to all nations, even after failing Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The disciples would need to know this truth after they did exactly what Jesus said they would do. They were sinners. They were forgiven by God's grace. Grace takes the wind out of the sails of prideful, imperfect disciples like you and me. So come before Jesus with a posture of humility, realizing that the only reason you don't fall is because God is gracious to you. So that happens, but the night wasn't over yet for the twelve or for Jesus. So let's continue on. Point two, prayer, in verses 32 through 42. So, after this moment, on the Mount of Olives, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press. Uh, it was where uh, olives would get squeezed and pressed and turned into olive oil. It's an amazing setting for what's about to happen in our text. Jesus takes his disciples there to pray. And specifically, he takes his three closest disciples with him to watch him. It's not just because he needed the company. Notice this. Look at verses 33 and 34. It says, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. These words for greatly distressed and troubled are intense words. Sorrowful even to death. His whole being is shaken by what's ahead of him. And he wants his disciples to see this. He's intentionally not hiding it from them. He's not just trying to keep it together or hiding what, what's truly going on from the disciples. So men, I'm specifically speaking to you here and to myself. Jesus is modeling something important for us here. 
Part of discipleship is transparency with what's going on in, in your soul. For real. Women, I'm not so much talking to you here because you guys seem to do this pretty well. And I'm encouraged by that. But if you don't, this is for you too. When you're in your DNA groups and someone asks you how, how you're doing, it's unspiritual to always say, I'm okay, or doing great, unless that's actually true. See this. Jesus brings Peter and James and John there to let, let, him, let them see him be greatly distressed, troubled, sorrowful even to death. Don't be afraid to let those closest to you see you in distress. That's not weakness. Jesus was fully human. He was experiencing real grief here. But why? Most biblical scholars believe that it was due to the weight of sin that was approaching. To be clear, not his own the world's, the disciples, yours, mine. He wasn't to the cross yet, but he knew that this was imminent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's not afraid of the physical pain, necessarily. That's not what's going on. Many martyrs throughout Christian history have gone to their deaths with no such mental anguish that we see in Jesus here. But Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of the sin that he's going to bear and the forsakenness of the Father. Understand this. He lived every moment of his life Every single second, completely dependent upon the Father. Sharp contrast to Peter that we just saw, who was so self-reliant. Jesus was fully dependent and knew that he was about to be God-forsaken. His soul was sorrowful, even to death. Life wouldn't be worth living without the conscious presence of the Father's love. Do you see the weight of sin here? And the depth of Christ's love for the Father here? Sin is no light thing. But we can take comfort that Jesus can empathize with our darkest hours. He entered that darkness to overcome it. Second, you see what Jesus does in the midst of his darkest hours of grief. What does he do? He prays. Again, he's modeling this for his disciples and for us this morning. Where do you go in the midst of distress and trouble? To your own willpower? To a self-help solution? coping mechanism, or to the Father in prayer. 
If the perfect Son of God needed a prayer-filled life of full dependence on God the Father, if that's true, and it is, how much more so do we need that as sinful human beings? Prayer shows our dependence upon God. God is worthy to be sought. He's worthy to be sought. So I'll ask this question. Where is the first place that you turn during affliction? Now, what happens next is honestly somewhat shocking. Look at verses 35 and 36. It says, And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is Jesus in his full humanity, asking God the Father that if at all possible, that the hour and the cup might be removed. Think about that for a second. This is weighty. Jesus, nearing the most important moment in history, asking if there's another way. He knew that what was ahead of him was going to be horrible. Taking on the sin of the world. Experiencing the full amount of God's just wrath for the world. Our feeble minds can't even comprehend that. Jesus' mind did. And within this prayer, Sinclair Ferguson notes this. He says, This incidentally teaches us that it is not necessarily wrong to ask for something which God does not intend to do, so long as our hearts are prepared to submit to his will, whatever that is. Do you see that? It wasn't sinful in any way for Jesus to pray this prayer. Then, within that prayer, he fully submits, yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you understand the beauty of what's happening here? In a gut-wrenching prayer, Jesus, in his full humanity, desires to escape what lies ahead. And fully desires to be obedient to the Father. Have you ever prayed like that? God, I'm not excited about what's going on right now. This is awful. If possible, can you please make it go away? And I trust you. I, I submit to whatever you have for me. Even if that involves suffering, I want your will. That's God-honoring. Real prayer. That's prayer that's fully dependent upon the Father. I understand that, that none of us will experience what Jesus did in Gethsemane. That was unique to him. But there's so much for us to learn here. Jesus 
models for us what it looks like to go through real grief and pain and affliction and trouble. Not to downplay it or hide it. And to cry out to God in dependent prayer. God is worthy to be sought. So while all of that's going on, where are Peter, James, and John? Verses 37 through 42. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Did you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want us to see a couple of truths here. First, isn't it amazing that in the midst of Jesus' agony, he still takes time to care for these imperfect disciples? He could have just seen them asleep, kind of rolled his eyes and thought, you know what? I've got too much on my plate right now to to worry about them. Let him sleep. Sheesh. But he doesn't do that. He wakes him up. Three times. Notice that in verse 37, he goes straight at Peter. Singles him out. The vocal disciple who just assured him that he would never deny him. In fact, Jesus wakes him up three times. Same number of times Peter would deny him. Second, isn't it comforting to know that Jesus understands our human weakness? Look at verse 38. Jesus understands that our flesh is weak. And that the solution to that is dependence on God through prayer. I know I'm being repetitive here. But the solution to temptation isn't trying harder. It isn't just giving in and claiming God's grace. No, it's prayer and asking God for help. A willing spirit isn't enough. We desperately need to depend on God. And we must be realistic about our ability to withstand temptation. Prayer is our first line of defense. So even in his agony, he's caring for imperfect disciples, gives them the solution of prayer. And then third, I want us to see the reality here that humans can and will fail you. Sometimes even those closest to you. You see that here? In one of Jesus' darkest hours, they slept. They were checked out. They let him down. They failed him. As the saying goes, the best of men are but men. 
I've heard this story, unfortunately, hundreds of times. People that say, I used to be part of the church, but then so-and-so burned me. Or maybe it's the failing of a public figure. Yeah, I, I used to follow Jesus, but then that famous pastor fell morally. That's horrible. And there's no excuse for those things. But this is why we ultimately don't place our faith in men or women. But in Christ alone. Even the most well-meaning disciples will fail you. But Jesus won't. He's the only perfect one who will never fail you, ever. Peter, James, and John absolutely struck out here. And yet, Jesus had compassion on them. He would restore them after his resurrection. He would go before them and commission them and use them to change the world. They were imperfect disciples. And God used them for his glory. So if you've had a brother or sister fail you, I'm genuinely sorry for that. But I want to encourage you this morning, remember the gospel. Forgive them. And don't rest your faith on anyone but Jesus. Also, know that God wasn't surprised by that. Take your hurt to him. Independent prayer. Finally, and in closing, notice Jesus' words to them when he found them sleeping. He says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. I love what J.C. Ryle says here. He says, we must watch like soldiers. We are upon enemy's ground. We must always be on our guard. We must fight a daily fight and war a daily warfare. The Christian's rest is yet to come. We must pray without ceasing, regularly, habitually, carefully, and at stated times. We must pray as well as watch, and watch as well as pray. And I love this. He says, watching without praying is self-confidence and self-conceit. Praying without watching is enthusiasm and fanaticism. The man who knows his own weakness and knowing it both watches and prays is the man that will be held up and not allowed to fall. So Christians, are you awake? Are you awake? Are your souls aware of the sinfulness of sin and of the battle that rages on around you? If you are, how can you not be driven to prayer? Wake up. Watch and pray. In light of that, let's go to the Father this morning. Before we take the Lord's Supper today. I want us to take an extended time of prayer just to confess sin, to ask for God's grace, 
and to profess our complete dependence on him for all things. So for the next couple of minutes before we take the supper, we're just going to take some time in the silence to do these things and to go to the Father. Let's pray.